You're listening to the Coffee and Clergy Podcast. I'm Pastor Scott, and we're glad that you're joining us today. You can watch us live on YouTube or Facebook on Wednesdays at 9.30 a.m. Central. And you can always give us a listen on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Without further ado, grab a cup of joe, find a comfy chair, and enjoy the conversation. Well, welcome back to Coffee and Clergy here at King of Kings. I'm Pastor Scott Pitch. Uh, we got a brand new series for you, a new year, 2022. We're excited for uh, some new content this year and looking forward to uh, all the discussions we're going to have. So I think one of the uh, things we're going to do to get started today, though, is to open with a prayer. So please join me as we uh, go before our Lord, before we uh, get into any of our uh, content today. So... Heavenly Father, I give thanks to you this day, uh, God of all time, of all people, throughout all generations. I give you thanks for your goodness and for your mercy to us all. I pray that you would continue to guide us in this Coffee and Clergy discussion. I thank you for uh, guests who are joining us for the first time, for those who are back with us once more. For those who are live today or those who are listening later on the podcast, I pray that you would guide their hearts and their minds, that you would help them to Uh, Take to heart your word and uh, the reality of your goodness to uh, people of all ages, all generations, all uh, social and cultural backgrounds, uh, that we might know your love, that you are a God for all nations. And so we pray this all in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, so we're starting a brand new series. It's just me today, um, Pastor Scott. Um, the reason why we're it's just me today um, is because I want to kind of lay some groundwork uh, for this series today. Uh, we, we are calling this series From Generation to Generation. We're going to focus on the way that generational interactions happen here at King of Kings. We are a multi-generational church. We don't seek to emphasize... Uh, older people or younger people, we seek to emphasize God's people no matter how they come to us. And so because we are a church that emphasizes all ages and backgrounds, we want to uh, take this opportunity to talk about that that sort of uh, the way that plays out. Uh, we are a church of people from zero to 100. And so how do our uh, 50-year-olds interact with 40-year-olds? How do our 99-year-olds interact with our nine-month-olds. And that's important, I think, um, as we are a people of fellowship who live here in uh, in the church. So uh, before we begin, I want to open with a, a Bible verse here from Ephesians chapter 4, which I think sort of cements this idea that, that the church is called not to be uh, people that serve um, elders or youth or or any particular demographic, but the, the church is called to bring all God's people together. This is from Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 2 to 6. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this unifying verse helps us to remember that that we today are the church the same way that Peter and Paul and the apostles were the church, the same way that Moses and the children of Israel uh, in the wilderness were the children of God, the church at work. And so uh, it, it reminds us that whether we are old or whether we are young, whether we are living in the 21st century or the 1st century, it doesn't matter. We are God's people if we find ourselves with our core identity in the one God whom we love, in Christ Jesus, his son. 
Uh, we thank we thank all those who are here with us today. I didn't really say thank you and welcome to anyone who's new with us. If it's your first time with us, Coffee and Clergy is a, a podcast usually where Pastor Doug and I sit down and talk about Scripture. Uh, we kind of alternate between a, a scriptural discussion and a discussion that's sort of more on a practical side where we bring biblical principles that we study in Bible studies into uh, sort of the real world, and we bring the real world into into the the church as well. And so our mission here at King of Kings is pretty simple, and then we describe it in a a bit more detailed way, but the simplicity of our mission is at the core of who we are at King of Kings, and that's simply to share the heart of the king. Uh, If you ask virtually anyone who's been here for any period of time what the mission of King of Kings is, you'll hear this phrase, to share the heart of the king. Um, this is at the heart of who we are. We are here to share Jesus's heart with Jesus's people. And we do this in three specific ways. Um, three keywords. The first one is to connect. The second one is to grow. And the third one is to share. And we expand upon each of those ideas. The first one, connect. Connect with God and others through worship and fellowship. And we've been very meticulous about designing these phrases so that it really does do a good job of highlighting the things that we actually do at King of Kings and what we're about. So this first one, to connect with God and others through worship and fellowship, is one that I think is uh, extremely important at the core of, of who we are as the people of God here at King of Kings. Um, and you can hear right in the language, there's this idea of, of intergenerational relations where if we are truly to be a people of God who connect with each other and connect as a body with God through our worship on Sunday morning and through fellowship, then we better get along with each other. Uh, And when I say get along with each other, I mean we should find ways to connect the entire body of Christ here at King of Kings to each other. So we shouldn't be uh, a church full of cliques or full of uh, sort of age groups or background groups or common interest groups. I mean, there's there's an area and a space for for people who have common interests to gather together, but the church, where we gather in, in true unity and fellowship, where we worship together, is not the place for those kind of divisions. And so we connect with God and others, whether we belong to elder generations or younger. And the Bible is all too clear about that idea that the church is a church for all generations. And if we are equipping it, the, the people of God in a church to, to favor or, or lift up one generation over another, then that's a worldly idea, not a biblical idea. And so that's something we want to kind of uh, impress upon this series called From Generation to Generation, is even though we're going to highlight generations, we're doing so in an effort to try and create collaboration and fellowship between people of different uh different backgrounds, different generations, different socio-cultural um, backgrounds. And so it's important that we start with that idea in mind, that the purpose of this is unity, fellowship. Okay, Number two, to grow like Christ through Bible study and service to others. And so even at the core of this, we see an intergenerational aspect at play. If we have Bible studies that are designed for different uh, walks of life, that's okay, so long as the idea is that we're trying to equip the people of God within that age group to take part in the in the greater play of unity in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we don't want to create an environment where our study or our service opportunities are, are targeted at a specific generation. We want to serve God's people at large. We want to serve our communities at large. Uh, we, we want to especially step into areas where the church has uh, seen uh, a kind of historical uh, sort of um, lack of ability to reach that demographic. And so we want to um, take opportunities to try and reach to all of the generations. Number three is to share our faith through missions and daily living. And I think at the core of this, too, is a intergenerational uh, relation that's at play. We, as the people of God of all generations here at King of Kings, seek to share our faith. 
And we seek to do that through missions, through intentional missions where we go to places and bring the good news of God, where we bring the work of our hands and the words of our mouth to serve God's people. And we know that there are are people in our congregation who are not perhaps physically equipped to pick up a hammer and drive in nails. But we also know that there are there is a way to do mission that doesn't involve uh, physical activity. There's a way to do mission that doesn't involve uh, a massive amount of understanding so that kids can participate in that. At the core of missions is the heart of God's people. And there's no um, there's no disability or or physical challenge that can uh, disallow the heart of God's people to do the mission that God has given them to do. And so we see an intergenerational aspect at play. And then daily living, too. I mean, our, our daily life and daily living, uh, we, we live in the midst of a world that is intergenerational. When we go into our workplaces, we don't work with people who are just the same as us. We work with people who come from different generations, different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different um, religious uh, affiliations. And so it's important for us to acknowledge that we carry ourselves not as representatives of our generation or our economic background or cultural background, but we primarily carry ourselves as people that identify as Christ's children into those daily living scenarios. And so there's a, an intergenerational aspect at play there as well. And so these inter, intergenerational relations are really at the heart of the church. They, they are there under the surface for virtually every single activity that we do as the church. Even that idea of the church has these intergenerational aspects at play because we are the people of God, whether we are 80 or 8. And so we need to be able to understand our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can interact with them, so that we can encourage and uplift them, that we can help them grow, as our reading from Ephesians said, so that we can be patient and bear with one another in love. If we don't understand, if we don't seek to create a common ground, it's difficult to be humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so that's a great place to begin, is to uh, have a conversation about generations. Um, this idea of intergenerational relations is nothing new. Um, for the oldest members of our congregation, they can remember a time where they were children, where they were young adults, where they were parents in their middle age, where they were um, people in the workplace, where they were uh, elders in the congregation. And these intergenerational aspects have been there all along. And one of, the, one of the, the unique things that we see in the church that we don't see in the culture is this call to reconciling between the generations. I think a lot of times when we talk about generations and this idea of this kind of segregation of people based on you know, their age, um, we fall prey to this idea in our society that there are irreparable differences between the generations and we can't stand this generation because of their tendency to X, Y, or Z. In the church, we don't get the option to simply point fingers at a group of people and say they're lazy or they're controlling or they're this or they're that because of their generation. Instead, what we are called to do as the people of God is instead to to revere the experience of those who are the elder generation and at the same time to value as a precious jewel the enthusiasm that comes with youth. And the two are meant to operate together. And I think that's something that because of the the culture out there, it started to creep into the church within here where we see these dynamics at play that come into the cultural vernacular of those millennials or those baby boomers or those, you know, lazy whatever. And we let that start to creep into our into our worldview and our perspectives within the church, and that causes uh, some damage for us. So that's sort of uh, an idea that we need to drive out within the church because we are called to revere the experience of our elders and also to value the, the youth and the enthusiasm that comes with that youth. And both are necessary for the true church to reveal itself. If we have uh, too much reverence for elders and we 
put down the younger generation and and never listen to their you know their worldview and their approach to things then we're going to have a church that's unbalanced likewise if we only do things to try and reach the next generation while ignoring the elders in our congregation we're doing ourselves a grave disservice by ignoring the experience of age and we want to certainly uh be be not only open but inviting to both generations to participate in the way that the body of Christ plays out into the world as the church. And that's totally vital. So one of the areas that I think uh, we can really pay attention to this is from our scripture. Uh, We have a lot of verses in the Bible which point to this idea of reverence for the experience of elders and also showing the value of youth and enthusiasm and energy that can be put to good use for God's work. And one of the verses I'll bring up today, <clears throat> pardon me, is from Titus chapter 2. Um, Titus chapter 2, uh, Titus, first of all, is a book that, that is written to uh, a pastor about how to pastor his congregation, how to help the, the uh, children of God be the church, how to help uh, the church act as it should from a pastoral perspective. But it, it's not just written to pastors, it's written to the people of God. Because it has a lot of wisdom for us. It has a lot of uh, wisdom for how we can employ ourselves today as, a, uh, as the people of God receiving God's gifts and also as acting as a force for, for true good and truth in the world. So Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, read this way. <clears throat> You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And so you have this call to Titus and to the church at large to take seriously this idea of venerating, of respecting and honoring the experience and the tradition of, of elders, and to teach even the elders in our congregation, how to be an elder for the people of God. And you notice the things that they mention there are to be worthy of respect, self-controlled, to be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. And in doing so, these are things that take a long time to develop, to be truly wise, to be worthy of respect, temperate, self-controlled. It takes an entire lifetime to develop these skill sets. And that's why we call on the elders in our midst to be those things and to then teach the, the younger generations how to be, uh, how to be holy in, in the sight of God, how to be the people of God uh, at work in the world. Okay? All right, so let's move into a slightly different uh, idea. I'm going to get a drink of my coffee. I, I forgot to invite anyone who, who wants to sit down with a, with a cup of joe or a tea or anything like that to do so. We want to create an environment that's uh, you know, warm and friendly and, and conversational, too. So if, you have any, uh, if you're listening live and you have any questions or comments or anything like that, um, I actually have my phone here just in case um, so I can read any questions that we might have. So... Uh, if you have anything, any comments you want to leave, go ahead and leave those. But I'm going to grab a sip of coffee right now. Save my voice a little bit. All right. So when we come to a discussion about generations, one of the things we want to be careful about doing is falling into the cultural vernacular too much. We don't want to fall into the idea that there are these distinct generational divides and that these people fall into these categories. We don't, we don't want to fall prey to that. But that same thing being said, it's important to acknowledge that there are things in this life based on when we were born, based on the people we grew up with and the events that occurred all around us that shape who we grow to be in adulthood and in later life. Um, and, a lot of people don't acknowledge that the experiences that they've had are 
unique to them because they experienced them in a particular season in their life. And I think there's something we as the church can can actually glean from that that is helpful when we discuss this idea of intergenerational relations in the church. So there's four uh, sort of key ways that we can define or or approach uh, generations. Um, there are generations are kind of defined in this way. It's defined as a group of people who have commonalities in these four categories. So the first one is kinship. And what I mean by kinship is this idea of a certain camaraderie that comes around. Uh, think about your your classmates growing up in school, right? Um, when you reach a certain level with your classmates and the socialization that you have with people who are your peers, you develop a kinship with them that is different than the way you develop a kinship with your parents or a kinship with your grandparents or with people that are there that your parents or grandparents age. Or even uh, you develop a kinship which is tighter than that which you have with younger siblings or younger cousins that might fall, you know, 15, 20 years away from where you are at that particular moment in your life. And to ignore that distinction is sort of perilous. Matter of fact, in, in developmental psychology, one of the key things they look for in a healthy human uh, mind and psychological state is this idea of social interactions with peers and how important it is to develop those good, uh, that good sense of kinship with people that come from your own, your own similar backgrounds. And so um, in, in early childhood psychology, indicators that they look for early on in kind of preschool age or you know, playing alongside and things like that. In adolescence, they look for you know, social interactions where you, where you, uh, you know, step out of your home to play with friends, where you go to you know, sleepovers or you, do, um, you, know, you go play in the park with, with buddies or whatever, or you, you, know, you have uh, birthday parties. Things like that are, are healthy indicators of good mental and sociological health. Um, and so this idea of kinship is kind of at the core, I think, one of the things at the core of this idea of a generational model. We have a certain kinship to people who fall within a certain age range of us or within a, you know, uh, a similar background as us. Age is, is a big part of that, but it's not all that, that is there uh, that, that, that matters about that. Um, so kinship is at the core. The next one is age. So there are certain things just because of the fact that we were born during the same time, we have certain associations uh, with people our own age. So um, the way that I, the, the, so I'm a millennial, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about the millennial generation. The, each generation is kind of, um, has a capstone moment within it where people experienced an event in history that that they all can associate to and, and remember. I call this the um, where were you when moments, okay? So the where were you when this happened, this event happened. Um, so for my parents' generation, uh, or even a little older than that, one of the key indicators there is where were they when JFK was assassinated? That was a big one for their for their sort of age range. For mine, my group, it was 9-11 is a big one. Um, do you remember where were you when 9-11 happened? That's actually something that comes up in conversation sometimes when I meet people of my own age. It's not like one of the very first things like, hey, how's it going? I'm Scott. Where were you on 9-11? That, that would be strange. But, you know, over the course of getting to know people, it's a thing that comes up that you say, what, well, what were you doing? And for me, I was actually on a on a choir trip uh, with my high school choir, <clears throat> we had like a regional competition coming up, and so we were actually at the Grand Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, doing this choir thing. So I wasn't actually in school proper, but we heard about it uh, about 11 o'clock that day after a session. Somebody came in and informed everyone in the group that there had been an attack on the U.S. And so I, I obviously would not remember that day at all. It would have been just another day but because it was 9-11, I remember when and where I was that day. So the reason I'm bringing that up is within age, we all have this idea that there are certain things that we absorbed that are a little bit different than the way other ages uh, remember them. So I'll bring, I bring up 9-11 because 
the vast majority of people listening to this will remember 9-11. We do have people in our midst who perhaps wouldn't remember it. Uh, people who are under the age of, you know, 25 or so wouldn't really remember uh, 9-11 that well. But for other adults, uh, people who were adults, you absorbed that date in history a different way than I did. I was a high school student uh, at that time. Uh, I think I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and so I kind of absorbed that in a way that was similar to people my own age group. And, p- and my parents absorbed it in a way that was similar to their age group. Now there's crossover there. We all felt sort of a- attacked to some degree. We all felt sort of like uneasy at that time. But the the sort of residual effects of 9/11 had a deeper impact on my generation uh, from a from a mindset standpoint, a mentality standpoint, perhaps than it did for other uh, generations. In the same way that like the JFK assassination had a a bigger impact on baby boomers than it might have done to their uh, their silent generation and greatest generation, uh, the World War II generation. Uh, parents like they had seen you know things that were violent like that and they some of them didn't really consider JFK to be their president and things like that whereas the the younger generation at that time the boomers experienced and took that in in a slightly different way and that kind of brings me to the third one which is social events these these uh, that I talked about some big capstone moments but there's also other social events that occur um, that that are kind of unique to people that grow up within a generation so I mentioned like the I mentioned a bunch of violent things right you have like Pearl Harbor you have 9/11 and things like that but there's also like positive social events like um, I, th- I know for a lot of people in my generation, it was it was a powerful thing when Barack Obama was elected because the idea that there could be a black president was a novel idea. And a lot of people, um, you know, regardless of politics, just thought that that was a positive step for the United States to go in. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of positive things uh, with technology that come around. So this idea of the Internet age and computing power, uh, personal computers um, during the, you know, eighties and nineties, uh, coming into, into mainstream. There's a lot, those are social and, and, and almost cultural, uh, events and trends, which, uh, are very powerful for certain generations that might, that even though other generations might've experienced them, uh, they don't experience them in quite the same way. And so, uh, and then the last one, the last of the the four ways to kind of define a generation is worldview. Um, And uh, generations tend to take different perspectives. And once again, this is sort of generalizations, but they they do have some truth to them. Uh, We don't want to overgeneralize and put people too much into a bucket. But by the same token, there are things that we can glean off the top of that bucket to kind of say these are helpful things that that allow us to understand the positions and the the worldview and mindset of people from different generations. So uh, an example of a worldview thing, I think it relates to technology too, is this idea of social media these days. So um, the the next the upcoming generation that's currently in school uh, is known as Generation Z. Um, I think they tried to do a couple of other monikers for them, but they kind of, but but they all generations have different monikers to some degree, but one always kind of floats to the top. But their generation is known as Gen Z. But one of the ones that they tried to uh, put on them that didn't stick was the iGen, um, sort of like the iPhone or the iPod, um, and it's this idea that uh, technology has really really defined this next generation. And one of the technologies that has most profoundly impacted them is this idea of social media. Um, Virtually all American people under the age of 18, um, it's not all, but virtually all, have been on some variety of social media, many on multiple platforms, and they've been that, that way since their early teen years. And this is the first time that level of of broad 
digital connectivity has ever been done in human history. And so there's rather profound impacts with that that are that affect the worldview of um, the younger generation as compared to the, the elder generation. Now, we can do one of two things. We can say, you know, those silly young people get caught up in their phones, they get caught up on their social media, you know, they should just put that stuff away. The reality is that stuff's not going away. It's just not. It's too prevalent in society. It's too, uh, it's too impactful. There might be shifts and trends from, from time to time, but the, you know, the car is here to stay, people. It's not going away anytime soon. The social media environment is not going away anytime soon. And so instead of kind of, you know, putting them to the side because they're strange and we don't really understand them, I think within the church it, it is extremely important that we do all that we can to try to understand and reach that generation in a way that's impactful and meaningful with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what am I trying to say? Am I saying we should, you know, we should uh, do more social media stuff to reach that generation? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's necessarily the, the case. But understanding that that is a major part which has developed their worldview is an important step to take that I think it's important we, we acknowledge. So this brings me all to this idea um, that I want to talk about now called generational theory. So the, the, we've kind of all been generally understanding this idea that there's the the, the silent generation and the <coughs> excuse me and the baby boomers and Gen X and millennials and stuff. Where does that all come from? This idea of generations is not one that was really all that popular until sort of the 1950s or 60s, and it kind of started popping into vogue because there were two social scientists named uh, Strauss and Howe uh, who had this um, sort of viewpoint of history that there was there were some trends which they had noticed about how history, the events of history intersected with people and how people intersected with the events of history. And a lot of, you know, very like hardline mathematician scientists say that the, the Strauss-Howe uh, generational theory is sort of pseudoscience, and to some degree it is. It was developed in the, in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s as a model to help businesses in marketing and advertising to reach out to people of a younger generation. And that's sort of one of the reasons we have to be careful with how we use generational theory because we are not marketing ourselves or advertising ourselves to the next generation. But they did, in the process of developing this theory, put their finger on some really important things that are at the, the kind of pulse of the, the culture that we see around us. And so one of the things they did in this generational theory is they came up with four archetypes that sort of occur on a on a rotating cycle. So they say that uh, a full a full generational cycle is about 80 years. It's not exact. It kind of has a lot to do with the things that occur during those 80 years. But there's this idea that that there are niches which kind of come into play about 80 years, which is about the span of an average human life. And that the the thing that happens is is they divide those in about 20-year sections. And as those groups age, the older generation falls off and leaves a vacuum in this sort of sociocultural area where there's a, a vacuum that, that has a niche that the next generation then naturally falls into as they develop in their, in their sort of into their own. And so it's it's a little bit over oversimplified in the way I just stated it, but anybody who has like a lot of siblings will understand this idea. When you are, if you if you have a bunch of siblings, you know that they aren't all the same. They're not carbon copies of each other personality wise. There's this idea of sort of you know middle child syndrome. There's the idea of the like domineering older sibling, and then there's the like the spoiled, rotten, younger sibling, right? And these are, once again, generalizations. I myself am not, I'm the oldest in my family, but I'm not the domineering older brother archetype. But uh, you see these things at play oftentimes. And what has happened is, and this is, once again, sort of this idea of, of 
childhood psychology, and there are people who can speak to this way better than me, but in general, the idea is that within families, there are these social sort of niches uh, within families that have to get filled. And then once one gets filled, there's not a vacuum there anymore. So the next child coming in feels this empty niche, and they fill that niche until um, all of the niches sort of get filled. And so if there's a domineering older sibling, there's no room really for a domineering younger sibling. So they tend to fall into that next area, etc. And they took this idea, I think it wasn't related to that, but they have this idea that's very similar, that within society there are these niches which are necessary for the progression of culture and society in in America. And... So the first archetype that they discuss is called an idealist archetype. Idealist archetype. So idealists are people who have kind of a core idea or mission at the center of their their mindset and their mentality. Uh, and they kind of carry that through with vigor and they make sort of a shift and a change against the way that things had kind of been done, or they bring fulfillment, perhaps, to the ideas of previous generations so that they, they are, uh, they, really, they take up the idea of a previous generation and they put it through and they say, this is the way we're going to do things. Um, and so we'll talk about the specific generations and how they kind of fit into this uh, idea in just a minute. But for starters, uh, idealists. And another name for idealists that's used sometimes is a prophet generation. They're people who are looking to the future. They're people who see how this ideal is going to shape the world, and they want to do everything in their power to bring it to completion. Following the idealist, after that niche kind of gets filled up with a bunch of people uh, that are born during a time period, there there's this vacuum for uh, a, a sort of cultural um, niche called uh, the reactive generation. So the second archetype is reactive. And so one of the things then that happens is when you put idealists uh, and they and they drive home their ideal and they say this is the way things should be done this is the the um, the core principle of who we are as as people then there's this idea that like well no we don't want to do that and so there's a generation that kind of reacts to that declaration of an ideal and says no we kind of uh, we kind of reject that model and that kind of throws the world into some some degree of, of chaos and to some degree of almost uh, anarchy because there's this, this principle at play where uh, you have an institution, an established idealized institution, and then you have a group of people who are um, have a, a great degree of antipathy towards that uh, institutionalized ideal. And that throws the world into some degree of chaos. So you can think about this sort of like during the Vietnam era, right, where you have sort of the, the, the hippie generation pressing against the institutionalized ideal of American victory, you know, that we will prevail over uh, all enemies like we did in, in, in World War II. Um, <clears throat> the next generation you have after that uh, reactive uh, generation is this idea of a of a civic generation? Um, a civic generation is one that um, sort of takes the chaos that comes from these reactive uh, generation, and it says, you know, it sort of validates the chaos, saying, you know, you're probably right. We probably shouldn't have set ourselves up in such an ideological way, but we need to bring some order and some security. Uh, to life. We can't live purely as anarchists, you know, trying to uproot all of society. So let's find sort of a happy, balanced medium. Let's bring some stability to the chaos. Um, and so oftentimes these, <clears throat> these, these people in this generation are called the, the hero generation because they have to confront a real challenge, a generational-wide uh, challenge and overcome that challenge to bring stability. So a great example of a hero generation is what we call the the GI generation or the greatest generation, right? They had the they had the the mass chaos brought on by 
the um, the Great Depression, and then out of that comes uh, Nazism and fascism and communism, and they have to sort of rise to the occasion in World War II um, to bring order and stability because chaos has reigned. Um, and so they're known as a civic or hero generation, and they give rise to the next generation, which comes to be known as the adaptive or sometimes it's called the artist generation. And this artist generation then is one that um, takes the, the sort of peace and stability that the civic generation has brought about and utilizes the sort of stable nature to, um, to kind of utilize creative pursuits to develop a new methodology or new... Um, ideology, and you can kind of see the cycle beginning to perpetuate itself, where they say these are the things that are truly good and valuable in our society, that are truly good about mankind. And then the next generation comes in and says, hey, those artists were kind of smart. We should probably take their ideas and we should institute them as the ideology which we all follow. And so we'll establish those institutions of ideology and say, this is the way that we live our life. And the reactive generation says, no, I don't think so. We shouldn't do that. That's not good. And then the civic generation comes and brings stability to that chaos. And that cycle repeats uh, over and over, according to the Strauss-Howe theory. And there's some validity to this. When you, when you read them, they go all the way back to English settlers in the New World in like the 15 and 1600s. And they show with some degree of historical accuracy uh, that there's a good trend or a good way to identify these trends as perpetuating themselves. And so even though, once again, we can't throw everyone into a, into a bucket and say, you stay over there in your, your you know, uh, Gen X bucket and I'll stay over here in my millennial bucket, um, and people don't always obey the sort of archetypes that you put them in, but in general, these, these things sort of hold true. And they, it shows an, a compelling idea that history is, it, although it's not deterministic by any stretch of the imagination, it does come in, in these patterns um, that, <clears throat> that continue to occur. So um, the key, I think, then is to uh, take the good and leave the bad of this Strauss-Howe generation theory and kind of take the idea that perhaps there are some trends that we can pay attention to and some, some ways of operating within generations that are useful for our developing a true intergenerational church um, and try and figure out what to take that's good and bad. So I think the key to this, the key to uh, intergenerational relations in the church is to understand the, the interplay uh, between these different types of archetypes. So um, reactionaries and idealists don't get along. And um, the adaptive types uh, and the idealist uh, tend to struggle a little bit because the idealists take the beautiful, artistic, and uh, hum- humanist perspective and the, and the, um, the cultural good and they take it and they turn it into an institutional, idealized uh, society, which the artists don't like. And so none of the none of the archetypes really get along all that well with each other, but some definitely get along better than with others. And I think a lot of what you see uh, in the world right now uh, with that with struggles between generations. For example, there's kind of this this perception of a strong um, headbutting going on right now between baby boomers and millennials. Um, and I think a lot of the reason behind that is because baby boomers are idealists. They have established this um, idea uh, to some degree of this this victory mentality of uh, patriotism, of, um, of this... Um, America first kind of idea. And um, to some degree, the, the millennial generation has rebelled against that idea, not because we are reactive. Uh, actually, the, the, the generation that came before us, Generation X, was sort of reactive against those ideas in the way that they um, operated. But 
the millennial generation then is like, well, we want to create a, a level of stability because we are a civic generation who wants to establish a a a degree of stability where we can operate and we can accept the sort of good from the idealized generation, but also we see the the new uh, artistic uh, and shifting sands kind of ideology that's coming down the road, and we are we kind of say, well, we can't have stability if there's chaos ahead and a demand for a certain older way of life here. And so there's this sort of butting of heads between those two generations that occurs. Um, So let's get into this a little bit. Um, How does this work in the church? I think that's one of the things we have to, uh, that's that's one of the things this whole series will be about. We're going to bring in people from the different generations that we're about to talk about to discuss their experience and their worldview, um, their their life of faith in the Christian church, <clears throat> the way that they interact with people of different generations within the church, um, their encouragement for people of different generations within the church. Um, and I think that you'll get a lot out of that, my hope is. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having those conversations with people in our different uh, generations because we truly are a, a church of the generations. We have people... Of, I mean, we, we've baptized a lot of infants uh, for a year where it's been COVID. We baptized a lot of infants. Uh, we have a lot of people in their later years, um, in their twilight years. And I think that it's a shame if we let, the, let the, the interplay of enthusiasm of youth and the interplay of the experience of the elders uh, just be lost to time. So I think it's important that we, we have these conversations with each other. So... Um, here, let's start this way. We have we have a few people in our church, and I think I counted them up. I think we have about ten members in our church who are actually uh, greatest generation people, uh, people who were born uh, like before nineteen twenty five. We actually have a several in our church. A lot of them are uh, are shut in or are in. Uh, nursing homes and things like that. And one of the, one of the things I see as a shame is, um, I think our, our, the majority of our church might think of them, uh, but they don't really have any intersection with them whatsoever, other than if they have grandparents or great grandparents, or in some cases, great, great grandparents who were actually their own, uh, family. And so I think we have a, a, an enormous wealth of, of knowledge, experience, of um, of uh, sort of vision casting that we we aren't utilizing if we sort of let this generation go without uh, you know getting to know them and sharing Jesus's love with them in this challenging time in their life. Um, so that was the greatest generation, and that greatest generation they were. Um, they were, like I said, the civic generation from the previous uh, cycle. Um, they were the ones who um, took on the the challenge of the the early and mid 1900s uh, with with great vigor. That's why they're called the greatest generation. I mean, it's uh, obviously people had struggles with with them, and they had struggles with other people. But in general, um, the world at large appreciates the sacrifices they made, um, and hopefully, we continue to honor and respect those people as they they uh, are in their twilight years. Um, we're not going to have anyone come in and speak specifically to that, um, but we will allude to it throughout our discussion. But we're going to get into the generations that, that most of our people in our church uh, fall into. Um, there's also a, a brand, brand new generation that's just coming online uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit when we talk about younger folks. But there's a generation that's, it doesn't have a name yet, frankly. They're, they're calling it Generation Alpha, and I don't think that name's going to stick. We'll, we'll see what, what occurs as time goes on. And we don't really know anything about them yet. Uh, they're people who are under the age of three. And so they're some of our very youngest members in our, in our congregation are going to fall uh, into that generation. And so I'm not going to interview a, a toddler, <laughs> but we will we will talk with um, the the people who are the who are age groups of that are parents of those kids. So we'll bring up those discussions uh, at that time uh, when we talk about those things. 
So the first generation that we're going to talk about, and actually the the generation that's going to be the main the main fixture for our next episode, is the silent generation. All right. So the silent generation is an adaptive archetype. So this artist adaptive archetype, they're they are typically the uh, the children, or sometimes. Um, uh, or sometimes, uh, well, they're the children of either uh, the the greatest generation or the generation that came before it, which was known as they have sort of an unfortunate name, the lost generation. Um, and I don't, I, and you can research those generations. Otherwise, we'll get into this this uh, idea of trying to cycle back too far. But you can look up the lost generation if you want to. Uh, but they're children either of the greatest generation or the um, or the uh, the lost generation uh, that. Um, lived in, that were born between the ages, and here's the tricky thing. Uh, when you look up the generations online, or you read a book about them, you never get a consistent start date. You usually get a fairly consistent ending date uh, to these uh, generations, but they tend to kind of shift one way or another by a couple of years. But I'm going with these numbers that I found that kind of, I think, do a good job of sort of dividing up the generations based on uh, those those social events and those um, kind of capstone moments within the generations. So the silent generation was born in my in my description here uh, sometime between 1927 and 1945. So these are people who were children during uh, World War II and the events that led up to World War II and the kind of chaos that came with all of those events. They have a, a depression mentality, meaning they had not, not a mental depression, but a Great Depression uh, mentality where they usually look at economic trends and things like that based on... Um, on scarcity, and they want to save, and that's their primary mindset, um, and, and things like that. So their their capstone moment, as I said, uh, is World War II, and you, if you want to really lock it in, uh, you could even say Pearl Harbor. That was sort of the, the one single event that sort of solidified this generation um, <clears throat> in terms of its, its development from a childhood. They were looking uh, for the next attack, they were looking for um, things which would cause uh, chaos and, and struggle. So they are the adaptive uh, artistic generation, and they're sort of uh, they're sort of benefiting from as they bec- as they grow into adulthood, they're benefiting from the stability that the the greatest generation provided as civic hero archetype, and so they develop these ideas. Of kind of um, you know neoliberalism and of things like that that are, that 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 sort of allow for a, a grander expression of of liberty for people and so you see a lot of uh, laws and trends start to come into play uh, during the 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 sort of adult years of that silent generation um, that the things like civil rights movement and things like that um, there. Uh, the next generation after them is the baby boom generation. These people tended to be children either of that silent generation, but more likely they were children of the greatest generation. So we call them the baby boomers because when the greatest generation returned from World War, they made a lot of babies. <laughs> and they made a lot of babies because family life became very important for that generation. When they returned home, they saw uh, they, they had experienced death and, and they had experienced pain and they had, in, to some degree, sort of won the victory. And because of that, they celebrated, but they also saw the responsibility of, of creating a next generation of, um, of children uh, that have uh, uh, great purpose and a great, uh, uh, you know, ideal by which they live, and they did become that. They became the the idealist generation uh, that took the I- sort of ideals of that silent generation that they developed, that they were artistically expressing, and they really drove them home. And this is where we get that uh, sort of uh, idea of. Uh, sort of the the cultural revolution of the the 60s and 70s a lot of it came 
when these baby boomers were coming of age. So these are these baby boomers, uh, they're idealists. They were people who were born between 1946 and 1964. Um, so my own parents fall at the very tail end of that. They were born in the uh, sort of... Um, you know, early 60s, 62, 63 time period. Um, and so, uh, they, they're not, um, they, they're not typical baby boomers are kind of in between baby boom and gen X generation. Um, but they kind of have this. So whereas their, their previous generation had a a great depression mentality, the baby boom generation has a victory mentality that they have won the the grand war world war II, and so they operate under this principle of of victory their their capstone ideal moment uh, that sort of framed them in their childhood is the JFK assassination and sort of the um, civil unrest that occurred uh, as a result of uh, civil rights uh, changes that were occurring at that time. The next generation after that is Generation X. Now, this generation is a reactive generation. Uh, they they are the ones who sort of um, combat or go against the ideal that was preceding them. And so these are people who were born uh, between 1965 and around 1980. Uh, and so this is the generation preceding my own generation. Uh, it's a reactive one where they're reacting to the ideal, which was established as um, as an absolute certainty by the previous uh, baby boom generation. And so their mentality is one known as a social tribal mentality. They were a, a much smaller generation than the preceding baby boom generation. So they were sort of disadvantaged in their own voice coming out into the culture. So instead of trying to compete with the baby boomers, what they actually did as they came of age is they... Um, they sort of created a, a solidified identity uh, through their music, through their culture. And so the kind of capstone uh, moment or, or, or event that occurred socially was this idea of the MTV uh, culture, this sort of culture boom with movies and TV and video games coming online and, and, and music becoming uh, sort of a generational phenomenon. And so... That was the, the Gen X uh, sort of demographic. And we're going to have a representative from these, these generations in each of the episodes. So you get to hear more about these. And then my own generation is the millennial generation. Uh, we are the, that civic archetype um, who wants to create stability off of the sort of uh, chaos which was produced by the reactive generation. These are people born between 1981 and in 1998. So I was born in 1986. So I'm towards the, uh, I'm more on the Gen X side of the millennial generation than on the more recent side. Um, these, these people developed a security mentality where one of the, the chief things they want is stability and security. And they want to feel like, uh, they are contributing to something. They want to feel like there's, uh, certainty and, and things like that. Um, and so uh, the big capstone moment, obviously, for the millennial generation is 9-11 as an event. That sort of framed them in their childhood. And then the, the last generation, which we'll have a representative from, hopefully, I haven't gotten one uh, lined up yet, but I think we'll be able to, is Gen Z. And these are people born between 1999 and 2019. So I think a lot of people don't realize that millennials are all adults now, uh, and they're, when people complain about millennials from an older generation, they think they're talking about kids, and they're not anymore. Now they're talking about the kids of the millennial generation and the kids of the previous generation. Uh, Gen Z is what they're called. So they've, this idea of Gen Z uh, is probably going to stick around, and they are an adaptive uh, generation. And I said 1999 to 2019. And they have a, a digital mentality, this idea that technology is sort of at the forefront of the way they interact with the world. 
that there's an app for everything. There's a social media account for everything. And obviously for them, the the sort of thing that shaped their uh, transition from childhood into adulthood is COVID-19 that we're seeing right now. And so this this time right now is a key time for this generation, how they will grow into adulthood as the adaptive uh, archetype. And then we mentioned uh, Generation Alpha as the perhaps new idealist uh, uh, group that as they come of age, they were, these are people who were born, uh, 2020 and it'll probably be into the future till about 2040, everyone who will be born during that time period. And we don't really know their mentality. We don't really know what their capstone moment is going to be. And so we just, uh, look with, uh, eager anticipation about the things that will shape that generation. So I want to end, I guess, by simply, uh, thanking you for being with us. And I hope, even though I kind of, rambled on about this a little bit. I think it's important that we sort of set the stage or set the foundation for all of our uh, our following discussions. Um, as we have conversations with people within these generations, if we don't uh, at first acknowledge that there are there are some differences between people of different generations and also acknowledge that we're not held captive to those, but instead we are one in Christ. I think unless we have that conversation and set that groundwork, we're at a disadvantage. So my hope is this was beneficial to you, and I hope you'll be back with us next week when we have a conversation with one of our members from the Silent Generation. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with her, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. So uh, let's close in a prayer and then we'll we'll get going. So please pray with me. Father, we give you thanks and we praise your holy name that you are God for all generations. Um, we know, oh God, that this world is a, a sinful and corrupt place that is in need of your, your salvation, that all generations have their flaws. All generations also are blessed by you, and we pray that you would use us for the good of your kingdom work. We pray all this in Jesus' holy and precious name, and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day in the Lord, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Coffee and Clergy podcast. We're glad you could join the conversation. Coffee and Clergy is a ministry of King of Kings Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Missouri. You can watch it live on YouTube or Facebook Wednesdays at 9.30 a.m. Central, and we post the podcast on Thursdays. For more information, check out our website at www.kokstl.org. Blessings on your day, and we'll see you next time.